So do you, uh, do you ever stop and think about the context of what somebody is saying or, or something that you read or, or hear? Do you ever stop and think about who it's being said to or, or who it was first said to or why or where it comes from? You've probably seen an ad on TV. Um, for one example, you've probably seen an ad on TV of, of a movie. You've seen movie ads, right? And at the end of the movie uh, ad, you might notice often there'll be a screen. It'll have these quotes that, that pop up, right, to, to make you want to see the movie. And it'll say, you know, exhilarating, a great ride. Um, and then maybe you've had this experience where you've been to the movie and you've been like, so where did those words come from? This was anything but exhilarating or a great ride. Have you ever had that experience? Right? And this happens because, because context matters, Right? And all those one-word quotes and those ads, right? they pulled the ones that they wanted to try and tell you something, but they, they probably didn't capture the whole review. In fact, if you had that experience and you went back and read the reviews, you probably found that, that they pulled some words from the reviews that didn't capture the, the full context of what was being said. Uh, a great example of this, 2015, a movie called Accidental Love came out. You probably didn't see it. It was awful. Um, if you know nothing about it, be glad. It's better that way right? Um, but it, it came out, and then the, this ad came out after, like, right after the movie was released, and it said, a comedic masterstroke, right? Only, only as I said, it, it was awful. Like, the critics didn't like it. The, the, the audiences that went to see it didn't like it. I don't know if some of you may know the tomato meter, right? And it's, like, out of 100. And if, when I look at the tomato meter, if it's, like, in the 20s or 30s, I have to really think before I see a movie. This had a nine, and it was bad. It was not funny, so you might wonder, where did a comedic masterstroke come from? Well, it came from a reviewer who wrote this. To be fair to whoever refashioned accidental love, in, in other words, produced it, there's little reason to believe that the ideal, untroubled version of the material would have been a comedic masterstroke. So the reviewer said that even a better version of this wouldn't have been good, let alone this movie, but... But it's so amazing. You just take three words out of the review, pull them out of context, and come see this amazing movie, right? Context matters. How and when and, and where something is said, it makes a huge difference in what it means. And in this world, we take in so much information. And I, I wonder if we, if we stop enough and think about context. Here's another example. A couple years ago, I... Uh, heard a politician on TV quoting Robert Frost. Um, the famous line, good fences make good neighbors. Have you heard this line? Anybody heard good, good fences make good neighbors? Well, if the politician had done his homework, he would have realized that the line from Robert Frost's poem in context really means uh, it's complete irony. He's implying that the fence is worthless. Um, it's from a poem called Mending Fences. And in the poem, uh, this narrator is, is like, keeps rebuilding this fence every year with his neighbor and wondering why they even do it. They don't have cows anymore. Like, there's no meaning to the fence. And by the end, he just sort of throws his hands up in the air and realizes, we just do this because it's, it's tradition and, it, and it's meaningless. Right? Robert Frost has written in other places, right? Good, good relationships make good neighbors. The fence has just become meaningless in the poem. Context, it, it matters. Taking time to know the context, it matters. So maybe you've heard this quote in the, 
in the Bible, in the words of Paul, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In a little bit, we're going to find that, uh, that this verse isn't even an entire verse. It's actually part of a, of a, of a larger section of, of thought by Paul. It's been used over time. This one verse has been used over time to, um, to say something different. But even as you heard in, in Megan's prayer earlier today, when you, when you put it in its context, it has a, it has a different meaning. So we're going to ask this question today, like what happens if we, if we look today, particularly at the book of Romans, and, and we look at the context and we look at what's happening? Is it possible that knowing context will give us more and deeper and richer meaning from, from God's words to us? So if you have a Bible and you want to turn and, and uh, follow along today, we're going to be in the book of Romans. As we do that, would, uh, would you pray with me? Lord, in these moments, speak to us through my words and in spite of my words, through our reflections and thoughts, or just speak, speak into our lives this day. And Lord, in this time together, whether we're in person or, or virtually gathered, we're, we're here, we're, we're gathered together because we want to know you better. May we discover today what it, what it means to be followers of Jesus and, and to know even more deeply the power of your love and grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me, uh, let me see if this sounds familiar to you. Things are just getting back to some semblance of normal. But upheaval in the world, it, it's changed society in ways that that we kind of now understand it'll never be the exact same. Different groups of people with, with different beliefs are trying to figure out how to be community together. But the times are, are challenging because, right, because the different groups, they have different agendas and different ideas and different, different thoughts about how to move forward as a community. And because of that, there just seems to be, there seems to be tension everywhere you turn. Everyone is, is asking this question together, like, like now what? Now what? How do, how do we move forward as, as people? How do we move forward as, as communities? How, we, how do we move forward through this uncertainty? Does it sound familiar to you? Of course, you've, you've probably guessed I'm talking about the first century church in Rome. Right? And if, if you didn't guess and you were thinking I was talking about today, then, then I hope we get a glimpse of why context can be so important and so helpful. You see, the, the church in Rome in the time of Paul was made up of sort of three kind of primary groups of people. And they were, they were struggling to figure out how to be community together. Right? There were Jews who had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, in the book of Acts, it tells us that at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and those gathered there, there were Jews there from Rome. And so we can imagine that they were filled with the Holy Spirit that day and they went back and planted this, this church in Rome. Right? They, they were probably the first leaders in, in this church. And then there's a second group that are Gentiles who, 
who wanted to follow Jesus and were told by the Jewish leaders of that church that the way to do that, the first step was to become Jewish. And so they, they became Judas, they converted to Judaism, and then they became part of this community following Jesus. And by the time that Paul writes this church a letter, there's a third group that is now a part of the church. And these are our Gentile believers in Jesus who, uh, uh, probably because of Paul's influence in, in the church and others, uh, did convert to Judaism. They realized that they didn't have to convert to Judaism to be, to be followers of Jesus. And so there are these, these three groups. Now, during the time of Paul, um, Emperor Claudius is in power in Rome, and he expels the Jews from Rome. And we know this both from the biblical source and there are other sources that confirm that at some point during Claudius's reign, he, he expels all the Jews from Rome. Well, when, he, when his reign ended, we're still in the time of Paul, uh, the, the Jews came back. And it's very likely that Paul is now writing this letter to the church in Rome at this point where old leaders have come back and they found a church that looks much different than it did before and there are new leaders in this church and they're all trying to figure out what it means in the midst of Roman upheaval to be, like what does it mean to be the church in this community today. So while the, the letter to Romans, it's known as one of the greatest theological treatises right, ever written, the reality is that Paul shared all this theology, this talk about God, these ideas about God, for a very practical purpose of speaking in to this church that was struggling with its identity and, and who it was and, and what it meant to be part of this community. So we get to look at this today and go, what does Paul say to this church in, in uncertain times about, about disruption and, and division? Well, Paul says this, says, you are loved, and you are good. He doesn't say you're perfect. He doesn't say you're not without sin. He doesn't say you're not without fault. He doesn't say that, that things aren't a mess. But he says to the church, you are loved, and you are good. I hear this today. My friends in, in ministry, I think too often we hear voices that tell us that we are not good. Right? Internally and externally, we have voices that tell us that we are less than or sinful or that we are trouble or that we are a failure or that we are bad or that we are worthless in some way. Well, Paul's whole understanding of God and, and humanity is built on a foundation found in Genesis. And that foundation is that you are good. God created you with purpose and intention. Right? With purpose and, and with gifts. And you're invited, we're all invited to be God's, to be God's children. Right? You are good, not because you follow all the rules just right. And you are good not just because you haven't sinned for two or three days, or you are good not just because of your status in society or your achievements or your education level or, or how much value other people give you. You are good because God created you. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 13 to 15. 
For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. He says this, that they, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Right, in the first part of the letter to Romans, Paul addresses some words to sort of each of the populations. And this, he, he's talking to the, the Gentiles in the community and he says, you, you don't even know the law, but, but some of you still do things required by the law. That's because God's law, it's written on your hearts and your very conscience. You know right and wrong. You know, you know good and bad. Paul's saying, you're, you're more than animals and beasts. You, you have God's law written on your hearts. You were created as, as good. So why don't you think you're good sometimes, right? We all have these moments in our life. Why don't, why don't we think we're good? Why do you question whether you're good? Perhaps because, perhaps because you've been taught or told about your sinful nature or told over and over again about your sin. And here's why context matters. We're going to turn now to Romans 7. In Romans 7, there's a, a line in Paul's letter, 7 verse 18. And uh, it's been translated for a long time, and actually the NIV still has this translation. It says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. And if you pull this, if you pull this out in this translation... Some have taught that the Bible says that our nature is sinful, that good does not dwell in us. But watch what happens. Watch what happens if we pull out and look at the larger context in chapter 7. So let's back up. We're going to start at verse 14. Paul writes, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now notice, Paul is talking about the power of sin here. But in telling his own story, he says something really important. I, I want to do good. Right? There is good within Paul. He's not saying that he is, he is bad or, or sinful at heart. He wants to do good. But it's, it's sin that is holding him back from what is good. We can go back to that other verse in 3. God's law is written on his heart. God's law is written on our hearts. That would be goodness within us. So let's keep reading. Verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I haven't the desire to do what is good, but I cannot for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. If you have an NIV translation here or, or at home and that you use a lot, I, uh, I need you to do something important. I need you to go into that translation and where it says sinful nature, I want you to cross it out. 
And I know people are like, it's sinful to cross out something in the Bible. But sinful nature has been used for too long to, uh, to translate a word, and it's a, lousy, it's a lousy translation, for a word that, that literally it means flesh or, or body. And I, let's, we can look at this and see this in the English Standard Version. So these same verses in the English Standard Version, I want you to notice it says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That line is similar. But then it says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Right? Paul says, nothing good dwells in me, but then clarifies it. He doesn't mean nothing good dwells in, in my heart or my soul. He clarifies, he says, nothing, nothing good dwells in my flesh. My, my flesh, our, our bodies, the, the flesh and, and blood, the, 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 essentially what makes us like animals, um, it's not inherently good or inherently bad. It is just the way that God, God created us. Right? But God created us to be more than flesh. Right? That's at the heart of, of Genesis 1. God created us to be more than the animals and the, and the beasts, more than just the sum of our desires. Right? God, God breathes into us the, the Holy Spirit. We're, we're made in the, in the image of God. Right? And, and thus, we're invited to not just live by our desires like an animal or a, or a beast, but, to, but given the, the gift to be able to, to orient those desires toward toward something, toward, toward God, toward relationship with God. All this is to say, so sometimes when I start talking like theology, I lose myself. So if I've lost you, just, just uh, land here. All of this is to say, your nature is not sinful. Your nature is good. You are good. And then Paul writes this, he says, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, or the sin living in me that does it. Right, so sin, it, it isn't in your nature. Sin, in Paul's words, it's an imposter. Right, sin comes into your life and it takes, takes the good and it takes the desires and it twists them around and it, it takes your desires and it, it makes, makes you want to serve something other than God with your, your life, to pursue relationships with things other than God in your life. But the power of sin, your sin, this, if we keep reading, this is not Paul's ultimate focus. Right? Paul says you are good, and, and as he talks about sin, Paul has something else to say to the church, and it's this. You are already forgiven. For the sin in your life, you've already been forgiven. You don't have to follow some set of procedures to be forgiven. You don't have to pass some test to be forgiven. You remember that line from earlier, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Here's, here's the larger context. Paul writes, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Right relationship with God is given to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God, and, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Right? Notice for Paul, this, this line about sin, 
it's encompassed by two other really important thoughts. This larger idea is how there isn't any difference between us. Right? That, that as humans, we can't put limitations on, on God's grace. All are justified, Paul says. All are, are forgiven and set right. No one has dibs on God's forgiveness. That's what Paul's saying to a people that are struggling to get along. Right? The Gentiles in the Roman church who haven't converted to Judaism, they're, they're, they're likely saying, well, the law, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You all who share the law, you're, you're, you're not doing anything with the law. They're likely questioning past leadership or challenging those, those leaders who are coming back with, with things to say. And then you have the Gentiles who, who converted, and, and they're saying to the Gentiles that haven't converted that you've got to convert to be part of this community. And then you, have, then you have the Jewish members of the community that are saying, if, if you as Gentiles don't accept the law and practice it just like we do, you're not going to be part of this community. And to all of this, like, to all of this, Paul, in, in this letter, he says, hogwash. Okay, you won't find hogwash in your biblical text. But essentially, essentially Paul addresses all of these divisions and, and says, in the midst of this, stop squabbling about how to get in. Or, or put some kind of human limitations on the grace of, of God and Jesus Christ. Right? By all the bars that we try and set as humans, Paul says. The, the bars that, that Roman culture sets, the, the bars that the law sets, by the, the, the bars that, um, that you're putting on this community, by all the bars that you set, you all fall short. But God's grace, it isn't dependent on those, on those bars. It matters not because everybody is forgiven. Everyone. In Jesus, that's already happened. It's a gift, not something that has to be earned. You are forgiven. It's a bit of an abrupt turn, but are there any Batman fans? I promise this will relate in a moment. Uh, Batman fans, 2012, there's a movie. If you're not a Batman fan, uh, hold with me. I have this thing about uh, um, superheroes. Uh, but... In, uh, in the 2012 movie, uh, Dark Knight Rises, and, uh, and this really isn't ultimately about Batman, but Batman, as Bruce Wayne, has bought this program called Clean Slate. And Clean Slate is a program that if you uh, essentially uh, turn this program on, it will go into all the databases in the world and it'll wipe your identity completely clean. And Catwoman, who has a bit of a questionable past, Catwoman wants this program so that she can use the program to just wipe the slate clean and start fresh, start over in her life, to be free from her, free from her past. Right now, this is fiction, but consider for just a moment, right, Jesus, Jesus offers us a clean slate button in our life. Jesus offers us a forgiveness, forgiveness button. You, you push this button and all of your sins are forgiven. Those pains in your life that you think define you, those, those mistakes that you've made in your past that come up for you every, every once in a while, that, that shame that you carry, right? Jesus offers us a way for all of that to go away, for all of that to be forgiven. But for us, the button isn't a button. The, the button for us is Simply 
owning that we trust Jesus, saying that we trust Jesus, putting our faith in the promise of of forgiveness in Jesus. Simply to trust, simply to trust God. Romans 3, verse 25, it says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You're invited to accept this forgiveness, this this clean slate, to accept God's grace simply through faith. God is always with you. You might think you've, you've made a mess. Sometimes when we've made messes in our lives and we think, man, God feels so far away. God isn't far away at all. We've, we've put God far away in our minds, but God is right there. God is right there in the midst of our messes and God just wants us to turn and say, I, I need you. And God is ready to, to help clear the, clear the mess, forgive our sins, make us whole and right again. Sometimes when bad things are happening, we feel like God is far away, but God is, God is right there. God just wants us to, to acknowledge his presence. It's in that acknowledgement that we come to know it. It's in that trust that we come to know it. When I've taught confirmation students about being justified in God's grace, this concept that Paul's talking about, I've used the example of lines of a page being justified. You know how you justify the margins on a, on a page? Well, there's a button on word processors today, right? You click that button and the margins, they just, they all, you don't have to go and, and do each one. It, it, you know, magically justifies all of the margins on the page. I tell, I tell kids when I'm talking to them, like, faith in Jesus is just saying, look, I know I need to get my life right. I'm just going to put my faith in and, and let Jesus justify the margins of, of my life. We just have to trust that Jesus will set things right. That's core, right? Paul says, followers of Jesus, we're invited to live free from the power of sin by the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ in our lives. In the the context of a a community facing tension, groups of people jockeying for for power and influence and not always seeing things the same way or or thinking the way forward is the same and, and asking the other now what? What do we do as a community? Now what? Paul, Paul says to the church, I think then and now, says start here. Start with these foundations. You are good. You are already forgiven. You are invited to accept God's grace through faith. So let's Let's start here together today. Let me invite you to, to say these things one at a time with me. Right? You are good. Let's, let's say it out loud. Say together with me, I am good. I am good. Right? And know that you're forgiven. You're already forgiven. There isn't anything you have to do to earn this forgiveness. Right? So let's say it out loud and internalize it and know it. I am already forgiven. Would you say that with me? I am already forgiven. And it's true that there's nothing we have to do to earn that forgiveness. We just have to claim it, accept it. So let me invite you now to think about accepting that forgiveness of Jesus and just say, I am invited to accept God's grace through faith. Would you say that with me? I am invited to accept God's grace through faith.
I want to invite the, the band forward. We're going to close in, in just a minute with song. As they are coming forward, let me offer our Faith Fit Challenge for, for this week. Each week at Clay Church, we have a Faith Fit Challenge. And it's something we can do every week to not just sort of hear the, the words of a message, but, but to put it into action, to, to live it out in our lives. Think about what God is calling us to, to do. So let me, let me invite you to do this this week as our Faith Fit Challenge. Uh, take four days this week. And five, ten minutes a day is, is all you have to spend. You could certainly spend more. I just want to invite you to spend four days thinking about sin in your life and thinking about the power of God's grace to to free you from that sin. So in day number one, uh, and if you're like me, go home and do this right after worship today because if not, you'll think, I'm going to start this on Wednesday and then you'll forget. So day number one, make a list of the sins in your life. And then take a moment and pray and confess them to God in prayer. And and I, I... Think back to that page that you justify. Like one of the things you, you actually do have to do is you have to highlight all the, all the text before you hit the justify button. Confessing your sins, it's just like, it's just like highlighting and, and pointing out to yourself the, the ways that you need Jesus in your life, the things that are, are out of alignment. So day one, just make a list of the sins in your life. Day two, and day two, spend some time and and just reflect on the ways that the Holy Spirit has been at work in your life to give you strength and to help you know God's forgiveness. If you need an action to do that on day two, take those, those sins and, and light them on fire in, in your backyard or, uh, um, or throw those sins away and know that, that God is, is setting you right. On day three, spend some time and, and reflect on when your, rela- when your relationship with Jesus began. How do you know Jesus? How have you come to know Jesus? What does it mean to you to know Jesus in your life? And if you come to day three and you're like, I don't, I really haven't thought about this question. I haven't, I, I don't know. Um, know that Pastor Kathy or, or me or, or any of our Clay staff or, um, or probably any spiritual friends you have here at Clay would be happy to have a conversation about, about what it means to know Jesus in your life. And then on the fourth day, in prayer, share with God one way that you want to grow in faith. Like empowered by this freedom to be who God is calling you to be. What's, what's one area of your life where you, want to, where you want to grow? It comes down to this. You are not sinful and bad and need somebody to make you good. Right? You are good. And you just need the love of God to cast the sin aside to get at the heart of who God created you to be. And you don't have to earn God's forgiveness. God has already forgiven you. You're invited to turn back to God simply to, to realize what God has already done for you in Jesus. And hear this, it's not your obedience or your dedication or your following some rules or, or even sitting here today and thinking, all right, I, I have to have it all figured out. You have to have all the answers. Uh, none of that is the key to, to being saved by God. You are saved by the grace of God. It is a gift offered to you right now today. You're invited to turn your life toward Jesus and just accept this amazing gift. And in this gift, let it be well with your soul. Amen.